Welcome, fool. I believe in the life eternal, as promised to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. Sergeant Howie, West Highland Police. I am here to investigate the disappearance of Rowan Morrison. If she existed, we would know. You suspect foul play? I suspect murder. Sergeant, if I were you, I would go back to the mainland. You wouldn't be around here on lady. Hail the Queen of the Bay! Where is Rowan Morrison? Come. It is time to keep your appointment with the Wicker Man. Oh, Jesus Christ! You simply never understand the true nature of sacrifice. You're listening to episode 97 of the Film 89 podcast. I'm Sky, and joining me tonight are two returning co-hosts who will be familiar voices to the ears of regular listeners. It's John Aminio and Stephen Saunders. Gentlemen, it's time to keep your appointment with Film 89. Because on tonight's episode, the three of us will be discussing cult classic horror film, The Wicker Man, which celebrates its 50th anniversary this year. Gents, is this the first time that you've both been on a podcast together? It I is, mean, yeah. It certainly is. Great. Long-time fan, but we've never chatted in person. Oh, thank same to you, sir. <laughs> well, that's what we're about. We're, we're about bringing like-minded individuals together. And, um, you know, obviously the, the, the three of us have talked about doing this episode for quite a while now, isn't it? It's It's been in the offing for a while. I think it's very appropriate that we're doing it when we're doing it. I think it's been timed nicely. Yes, it has to be in May, doesn't it? A little, little bit uh, later than May, Dave, mm. but, you know, it's uh, quite timely, I think. John, for the benefit of our listeners, tell us a little bit about what you and Scott Thurrow have been doing with Popcorn Eschaton, which is a kind of religious-themed offshoot of the Zebras in America podcast, because your expertise, I think, is going to be of great value when discussing The Wicker Man in terms of that film's religious themes. Oh, yeah, sure. So Scott Thurrow and I, of Scott Thurrow's co-host of Zebras in America, we sort of started a a spin-off sort of podcast where we focus on um, the spiritual and or leftist nature of films, whether those are from a spiritual perspective or not. And we sort of tackle them in that way. So, you know, like the recent episode we recorded was on Martin Scorsese's Silence, which is sort of an obvious one. Um, But we do a lot of like comparative religion discussions. And so I think that definitely fits in with (laughs) the theme of this movie. And in fact, this is a movie that I've had in the back of my head to cover on that podcast at at some point in in the future. But, you know, we're we're not quite there yet. And so, you know, other films that we've tackled were, you know, The Last Temptation of of Christ all the way to a Brazilian film called Black God, White Devil. Yeah, so obviously this film is very much steeped in kind of uh, religious iconography, religious commentary. Mm-hmm. Obviously, John, I, I, you can have quite a bit to say about it in those terms, I would imagine. Oh uh, yeah, I, I've, yes, there's <laughs> quite a bit of religion, um, both from the pagan and Christian perspectives in this film, for sure. So let's get into briefly how this film kind of came into being. Uh, playwright Anthony Schaffer, he wrote Alfred Hitchcock's Frenzy. 
He teamed up with his producing partner, commercials director Robin Hardy, to tell this tale of a pagan religious cult thriving in a remote Scottish island, which originally had been a remote Cornish village in the 20th century. Now, Schaffer wanted to concentrate on the abstract concept of sacrifice, and the book The Golden Bough, which is about ancient religious cults and practices, was one of several sources of inspiration for director Robin Hardy. Now, Hardy describes the story as a game, with Sergeant Howie as the pawn central to the game, albeit a game with a very dark and disturbing conclusion. So gents, when did each of you first see The Wicker Man and can you recall what your initial thoughts and feelings on the film were? Well, I'm sure I saw it on VHS tape and I, I don't remember owning a copy, which tells me that I must have recorded it off the television. I probably was in my mid teens and it was definitely the the theatrical cut not the director's cut or the final cut and it's hard for me to remember exactly how i felt about it i very clearly remember brit eklund's dance that that was drilled into my memory as was ingrid pitt's later scene and so you can tell i was a sort of boy in my mid-teens so those were the scenes that would make the strongest impression on me and i can remember quoting and misquoting lines from it in school so i I think it was probably at the time where the film was having a a a major revival because the story of this film is is a film that its reputation sort of gathered and, and grew over time. And so we're probably talking in the sort of mid to late 90s here where it becomes cemented as a classic. And so I can remember jokingly quoting the the, the sort of, you know, Howie seeing the, the Wicker Man for the first time and saying, you know, oh God, oh Jesus Christ. But we would continue going, you know, going, oh fuck, oh bugger, oh shit. <laughs> uh, that, that was the sort of, you know... We, but it's yeah it's hard for me to remember how i felt about the end i mean the more i see the film the more disturbing i find it and my sympathies have started to switch uh somewhat towards howie and now i find the ending very very difficult to sit through but yeah i definitely recorded it off the tv and and watched it as a teenager for me uh, yeah i think it came from sort of my own self-directed film studies in my late teens and early 20s so, you know, instead of writing a college paper, I would just scroll IMDb endlessly and be like, oh, what what films has Christopher Lee been in? Or what are some horror films that I need to see? And I would keep coming across uh, The Wicker Man as a film that I needed to watch. And so probably in the days of Netflix DVD mailers is when I first actually uh, watched it. And it's a movie that I think sits with you because um, I don't you know, it's not a thrill a minute sort of movie it it doesn't shoot gallons of blood at you but it's a movie that will just stick in your brain and and i think ever since i first saw it it's a movie whose sort of iconography has just never left me yeah i i think uh, right stephen help me out here what was that um was it a bbc program was it videodrome the alex cox uh um, sunday night kind of um, show where he would like introduce a film I'm not sure that I I saw that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it was video drama. That does ring a bell. I'm, I'm pretty sure that this was a film I, I heard either him or possibly Mark Mode or, or maybe even something that Kim Newman mentioned uh, in Empire, which I used to read mm. back in, like you, John, my kind of phase of self-education in film. And that was probably, I'd say, mid to late 90s. And I may not have seen The Wicker Man until as late as around about 2000. I may well have first seen this film on DVD, possibly VHS, but I think 
it may well have been DVD. And I do clearly remember how I felt about the film when I first saw it. I was expecting an out-and-out horror, and the film that I was presented with, I was kind of perplexed. Mm. I remember after seeing it thinking, well, apart from the ending, this is a really odd, quirky, kind of song-laden film. Mm. It's completely not what I was expecting, and I it just took me a few viewings to kind of avail myself of that initial feeling of what mm. the hell have I just seen? It may have actually even been a couple of years before I went back to it then. I remember buying this kind of um, lavish Warner Brothers DVD set, which included a film cell, the CD soundtrack. And I remember at the time Warner Brothers were putting up these deluxe DVD sets for lots of their films, films like Ben-Hur and Casablanca. And I, I picked up the set for The Wicker Man. And it was, I think that was the point where I was revisiting the film. And it was at that point when I watched all three versions, well, sorry, the, I think there were just two versions at the time. There was the theatrical cut and the director's cut. And then when I watched it and watched both versions and then digested all of the extra features and listened to the soundtrack, it was at that point where the film really did start to gel with me. And it went from being a film that I, I kind of struggled with to a film which I just mm. absolutely adore. I, I genuinely think it is a one-of-a-kind film. I can't think of any other films that it's like yet. There are lots of folk horrors. There are films like Witchfinder General and a lot of other films that kind of go into this sort of type of approach to horror, but not done in anywhere near the same style that I can think of. And yeah, now it is hands down. And if, you, if, if you're even going to call it an outright horror, which I think, you know, the, the best kind of genre it fits into is, of course, a horror. But I think it's so much more than that. And yeah, it's a film now that I just absolutely mm. love. It's a mystery adore. box film, though, isn't it? It's it, it it is a horror, but um, I think the lasting appeal. Well, there's many reasons why it has lasting appeal, but one of the reasons why it has lasting appeal is when you've finished it, if you're going to watch it again, you start seeing the trap. You start seeing what's being done to this man, which you wouldn't have seen the first time. And actually, the more times you watch it, the more layers of this you see and i think that's part of its appeal <clears throat> i will say you know talking about sort of memories of the film i do remember its strangeness i do remember the strangeness of the atmosphere i do remember the songs it, it is a one-of-a-kind film it, it's a mystery it's a musical it's a horror movie and in some ways it could be interpreted as a fantasy movie as well it's a completely bizarre blend of elements that that forms something that works very well and that is unlike probably any other film yeah, when when I think of films which are one of a kind, there's two films that spring to mind, both of them horror films. This one and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because The mm. Texas Chainsaw mm. Massacre is a film that, like this, is kind of a blend of art house cinema and horror. But I, I can't think of, of any film before either of those two films where I would say that Toby Hooper's film copied this film or Robin Hardy's film copied these films that came before it. I just think these films are completely unique and any films which have come since, which have maybe borrowed elements of it, you know, it, it, it doesn't change the fact that these were the originals. These were films which, when you watch them for the first time, I certainly felt like I'd never seen anything like them. And, and The Wicker Man, to this day, I, I've not seen a film like it since. I've seen films which do try and ape certain elements of it. Midsummer that did kind of try and be mm. a modern kind of take on the wicker man but I, i've never seen a film that, that has, has kind of just made me feel like this one does and, and you know a, a film that i did initially struggle with but then once i you get it i think how unique the film is is, is one of its unique selling points mm. and it's interesting that you connect texas chainsaw massacre with this one um, because i think these are both films that issue 
outright gore for like disquiet atmosphere and the emphasis on sound design. Yeah. In horror, certainly like sound is an essential element in bringing scares to people. But I think both of those movies just give you a mounting sense of unease. Like they use very different techniques, but I think they're both incredibly unique in how skillfully they use the way they, they sound and how that sound sort of establishes the environment you're in. Yeah, and it's like if you think of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that opening with, you know, the, the dead armadillo on the road, the, the, the shots of solar flares. It's just something completely disquieting and makes you feel uneasy. The Wicker Man has got a different sort of vibe to it, but one that is still unique to that film. But it's magical. It yeah. starts off magical and the music is magical, but it has these little glimpses of something disturbing underneath the strange looks that the you know, that the people who live on the island give him when he's not looking, the way they stare at him, the way they peek at him out of windows, and the way that this this man who is completely alien to them in his sort of stiff, dull uniform, the way he stands out from them, it is slightly disquieting. And the, the wonderful Paul Giovanni score, again, starts off magical and enticing and is a sort of mixture of sex and nature. Um, but by the end, it is actually quite scary. Um, so it does have this mounting sense of unease, as you you say. And yeah, the sound design is is a big part of that. I mean, I'm sure we'll get onto it more. But but Paul Giovanni's score has a big big part to play in the the atmosphere that the film creates. Oh yeah, yeah. We'll de- we'll definitely come to that shortly. Let's talk about the casting now. Edward Woodward plays Sergeant Neil Howie. Now he was kind of cast against his then London sort of tough guy persona because he'd been on a show called Callan, a fairly popular espionage thriller that ran from 1967 to 1972. But at the time, he was virtually unknown outside of Britain. Then you've got the legendary Christopher Lee as Lord Summerisle. Now, he was eager to kind of shed the skin of his famous roles in Hammer horror films, most notably Dracula. And Lee has since said that The Wicker Man is both the best script he's worked with and the best and most fascinating role he's played. Now, whether or not these were comments that were made before or after he played Saruman in Peter Jackson's Lord Hmm. of the Rings trilogy, but there's no doubt that this is one of his favourite of his own roles. Yeah, I mean, if anyone's seen um, the satanic rites of uh, Dracula, Dracula, they'll understand. Yeah. yeah, they'll understand why he was happy to escape that world. I mean, it has the most feeble death scene I've ever seen. Um, Dracula gets caught in some bramble bushes and then gets stabbed by a fence post. So it's, uh, it's which one bad. of the Dracula films is it that he's got no lines of dialogue? He doesn't speak. I think well, the second one he doesn't have any lines of dialogue. Yeah, yeah, he 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 says that. Um, whether differing stories, the the screenwriter said that he deliberately didn't write him any dialogue because obviously Dracula wouldn't speak, but that's nonsense because Dracula is meant to be, you know, very intelligent and has been around for a long time. Christopher Lee just said he he refused to speak the dialogue because it was so terrible, which I I find more believable. But I mean, in most of the films, he has very very little to say. Like in in the first Dracula, he has an opening scene where he welcomes uh, is it Harker, but then he doesn't have any dialogue after that. I think in Satanic Rites, he has one scene of dialogue. In Dracula has risen from the grave, in brackets, obviously. He has, I think he, he, he speaks a few words. I mean, and for a man with such a rich voice, such a beautifully trained voice to not be given any dialogue must have been actually very annoying. 
the thing that's so brilliant about his casting is he is cast to type in a way because you know he's a pagan he holds this island in his sort of thrall rather like rather like dracula does except that here he doesn't necessarily at least at first come across as evil and his religious practices actually are very you know related to nature and things that people can understand you know fertility um and sex and it all seems rather fun actually um and so it's quite interesting the way that they've created this character for christopher lee because the part was written for christopher lee and placed him in this villainous role but actually he's something quite different and if we didn't have a, a, a load of sort of associations with Christopher Lee, we may well not think of him as the villain. And of course, um, in Hammer Horror, it, it tended to be that you would have the sort of satanic character, and then there would be a man of God who would come in and vanquish the satanic character. And here, the satanic character's his way of living is actually quite appealing and the man of god's view of the world and his his way of living is repressed and priggish and actually from our point of view now is is at least on first viewing possibly quite unsympathetic and so it's taken this sort of hammer template and rather brilliantly swiveled it over onto its head it's very very clever and i want to say i think of the wicker man as anthony Schaffer's the wicker man which is how it is built that is the actual name of the, the the film and i think all of those elements those subversive elements i think you can relate to anthony Schaffer much much more than you can to robin hardy particularly anyone who's seen a film like sleuth which does a lot of the same sort of things that the wicker man does yeah certainly you know, what I find particularly fascinating and rewarding upon repeat viewings about this film, and in particular Lee's performance, is that to me, it's never clear how much Lord Summerisle buys into his own story. Mm. Because, you know, at this point, the island is desperate. They've lost a full season of harvest. And if they lose another, they're facing starvation or absolute destitution. And he's somebody who, you know, like a, a museum docent, narrates the story of the island and his grandfather and his father sort of, you know, bringing this island to life as it stands now. So how aware of the of the sort of artificial created nature of his religion is he? So is he acting out of fear that his whole society, his whole belief system is going to come crashing down around him if he can't turn it around mm. um, immediately. Because, you know, that's what Howie calls out to him at the end about. And with Lee's performance, it's it's so layered that you're never quite sure where he stands as a, as a character. Mm. And that makes him, the, the fact that he's possibly as scared as Howie makes him all the more, you know, frightening because he's capable of anything. And mm. I think if you compare that to, you know, another important folk horror film of this period, Blood on Satan's Claw, that's exactly in the mode you're talking about, Stephen. It's mm. agents of Satan who are taken down by agents of law and religion, whereas this one, there's just so many layers to who Sergeant Howie is, to, to who the townspeople are, and to who Lord Summerisle is. Yeah, I've gone on a journey with this movie, I must say. I've I've watched it lots of times in the run-up, but I can't stop watching it. I, I wanted to watch it today, but I just didn't quite have the time. And I, I my notes sort of start off with, he's a fake, he's a cult leader, 
and you know maybe he just enjoys the rights that he you know that he um participates in and that his people participate in maybe he's a, a fake but it it kind of works for him rather like it did with his grandfather but by the end i was thinking no he's a he's a polytheist he just believes he does completely believe it but he also believes in Harry's God as well. It's just he's cho- he's just chosen his gods. He prefers his gods. But I, I completely agree. You could you could interpret it any which way. He's either a cult leader and a charlatan, or he's a a, a true believer and a polytheist. And I, I you can't know. You can't know for sure. Which is why the film is so completely fascinating. And you know he he says with typical mid-Victorian zeal mm. when talking about his grandfather and so many of the cultural artifacts that we hold dear today are from that era. So like the way we view Christmas and the iconography associated with that, the way we view Arthurian legends, the way we view the medieval period and the role of women and chivalry, those are all Victorian creations. So it's perfectly in line with Victorian philosophy to establish a new set of cultural norms while creating a new society. Mm. So I I think we're going into this place like knowing it's sort of a syncretic version of the old ways. Mm. Well, I'll I'll, I'll come back to that at this point, guys. Stick a pin in it because Mm. I've got a question planned when we come to discussing the end of the film and we Mm. will come back to some of the things we've discussed here. But going back to the making of it, it was shot on location in Dumfries and Galloway on the west coast of Scotland in late autumn, which caused problems for Hardy when trying to make a film set in late spring. They had rain, they had sleet, and occasionally they had snow. And then the cast, quite rightly, bemoaned how cold the shoot was. Bearing in mind, actresses like Britt Ackland, Ingrid Pitt, Diane Salento, they were wearing clothing fit for a much warmer weather. They had to bring in trees from down south in England, which were driven up the M1 on the backs of lorries. And and the shoot itself, aside from the issues with being shot at the wrong time of the year, it was also very fraught. The financiers, they brought on cinematographer Harry Waxman, who was an expert in shooting for films heavy in special effects, as the producers, based on what they had in front of them in terms of the shooting script, were fearing that they'd have to overlay effects to make up for what they saw at that point as Hardy's lacklustre direction. Now, the version I watched in prep for this film is the final cut, the, the, the most kind of recent sort of assembled version of the film. And that version opens with a title card, Sunday the 29th of April, 1973. And then we see Sergeant Howie of the West Highland Police Constabulary at a church sermon. Then, correct me if I'm wrong, Stephen, I think the way the next bit is, is the way the theatrical cut opens when we see him flying his one-engine Cessna across these beautiful Scottish landscapes before landing in the harbour at Summer Is that how the theatrical version opens? It, it does. And I've said I've gone on a journey with this film. I started off... And I'm, I'm sort of embarrassed to admit this because I know it's controversial, but I just, I was attached, you know, emotionally attached to the theatrical version. So I found it quite jarring watching the director's cut and the final cut and seeing all this extra footage. But I've come around to generally preferring it because it gives you um, just a, a much more subtle, a much more subtle film that's just a generally a richer and more coherent experience that gives you more subtext i mean the, the film actually starts with a, with an image of nuada's face swooping in yeah. which you know I, I i've begun to think of this film as a fantasy movie and it's as if nuada was in it from the beginning watching over everything and then you know in the in the church scene you see uh howie and his fiance who in the novelized version of the film is called mary bannock you see them looking at each other 
and she's only in the film for a few seconds really but um I, she's quite memorable and i think she's memorable because of that look of love they give each other um but because when the film ends the way it ends you realize that this woman will have lost her her man her fiance you wonder well i wonder where her life goes from there and what she finds out and what she doesn't find out and uh, that's part of the reason why the film is so haunting and also what's so important about that uh, church scene which I initially disregarded because I originally I thought well we don't really need to know he's a Christian you can see that he's stiff and uncomfortable and he does say quite early on that you know he he believes in what you know Jesus and he's a Christian but the thing is is at the beginning of the film he is taking the sacrament and yes he at certain points in the movie, he denies the possibility of someone dying and turning from one form into another. So it's like he can totally believe in the sort of magical hoodoo associated with his religion, but in a different religion, he completely denies it. In fact, he finds it absolutely ridiculous, and they're essentially the same thing. And then, of course, at the end, he becomes the sacrament. He becomes an object of transubstantiation because obviously he he is killed to to save their their crops. So it's really actually quite important thematically, although I don't think you need, from a character point of view, in terms of understanding who he is, you don't need that. But from a subtextual point of view, you, you, you do need it. It's quite important. And then, as you say, we go to where the theatrical start, uh, cut starts and we're, we're flying over um, Scotland. John, have you got any preferences to which cut you prefer? Uh, yeah, I definitely prefer the final cut. Um, at least here in America, it, the director's cut is difficult to get. Um, so I haven't actually seen that version. But mm-hmm. I think because of the the importance of the opening church scene to me with the, the, the symbols of <laughs> introducing the symbol of, you know, bread as as life and, and transubstantiation and introducing religious iconography, I think that's sort of an essential starting point for the movie. And also there's just more more music in the final cut. And um, as I'm sure we'll get to, uh, that's an essential part of the film. And, and I think this isn't a movie for like pure plot execution. Like you need moments that are just pure character or just pure atmosphere. So I, I think the, the theatrical cut is just too lean for a movie that depends so much on atmosphere. I just want to say, um, and I'll probably not be able to stop myself from referring to this as we go through, but I I personally prefer the director's cut. Very similar to the final cut, but I I think what's happened is, this is my assumption, I don't know this, that Robin Hardy basically tried to use as little of this slightly rougher footage as he possibly could, but still... Mm -hmm give give you a kind of full experience of the film but there are certain scenes that that actually work better if those little bits that were chopped out to to bring down the runtime are put back in so it's it's a subtle it's a subtle difference but if i could pick a favorite cut despite the slightly degraded quality of some of the footage i would definitely say the director's cut's the strongest cut and i I think if i could just make one comment on the aesthetics of the film i I think it you know if you're watching like die hard or something and there are moments in the film that are significantly more or at least slightly degraded or noticeably a lesser quality it'll take you out of the movie but for this one because 
so much of Summer Isle itself is like bits and pieces from different religions, different belief systems, like it's all stitched together. It's sort of like meta appropriate for what the kind of film that this is. Mm. Yeah, I, I very often have got a preferred version when there's multiple versions of a film, film available. But for this one, I, I'm not so solid on it. I, I'd happily sit there and watch the theatrical cut. Mm. I'd happily watch the director's cut. I've not seen that for years. But, you know, the version that I've I, I've got available to me at the moment on Blu-ray is just the final cut. And, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy with that. I, I've not got, you know, for, for a film that I love as much as I love this one, I, I've not got a kind of firm favourite of, of the three available cuts. Mm. I think the best way to experience the film is to watch all three cuts, actually. Yeah. So where were we? Uh, how he's landed at, in the harbour at Summerall. Now, his job there is to find a missing 12-year-old girl by the name of Rowan Morrison. Now, the men who he meets at the harbour profess to not know the young girl, whose photograph, how he shows them. He then speaks to May Morrison at the local post office, who denies knowing Rowan. May's got a daughter, Myrtle. She seems to know a Rowan, but the Rowan she's referring to is a hare. Uh, I think, isn't she seen painting a hair in the in the first scene mm. that we see her? And then later that night, still in his police uniform, Sergeant Howie goes to the Green Man pub for a room and a bite to eat. And the, the wonderfully camped landlord, Mr. McGregor, introduces Howie to his daughter, Willow, played by, gotta say it, you're not going to like this, John, but she's my favourite Bond girl, Britt Eklund. <laughs> and the pub's patrons burst into this uh, quite lewd and bawdy song aptly titled The Landlord's Daughter. Yet again, no one seems to know young Rowan. You know, almost immediately, you're just sort of set slightly askew uh, in this, like, heightened reality of this place. Because the way McGregor and his daughter speak, it's fake-sounding Scottish accents. But if you're going to a, a, a small, secluded island in Scotland and people aren't quite speaking in a way that sounds Scottish it's just gonna like throw you off like are it's introducing the idea of performance and game playing right in the opening scene and you know they're going to the green man in and also immediately were introduced to the theme of parthenogenesis because the green man is a symbol of fertility and rebirth, but it's also a male symbol or a male deity. So it's male reproduction by his or itself. Uh, and so, you know, we're just, it's so concentrated in these moments in the opening scenes. Mm. I, I want to say something about the hair scene very briefly, mm. which is, I think it's important because it actually sets up what is essentially a practical joke later on in the film. So I've gone round and round and round with this and wondered, you know, who knows what, who's in on what. And I came to the conclusion that they're all in on everything. And even uh, little Myrtle Morrison uh, has been asked, because they must know that Howie is going to go to Mae Morrison's sweet shop because it's her daughter that's supposed to be missing. And it's almost like they've decided, in that case, we're going to get Myrtle to paint a hair because later on in the story, there's going to be a hair buried that he's going to dig up. So it, it, it's like the beginning of a practical joke. That's how the movie works. You know, it, the whole thing is like a practical joke that's a deadly practical joke that's being played on this man. And so I, I only really noticed that when I'd watched it multiple times. Um, but it's actually the laying down of a practical joke that's going to pay off later. And it's so, even like hairs are an Easter symbol and mm. they're March hairs, but mm. it's May Day. 
Mm. So there's all these other ingredients from other holidays already just being thrown at Howie. Mm. So on, on complaining about the food he's given by Willow, she then goes on to explain that the food is out of a can, much to the surprise of Howie. He then ventures outside and he finds the townsfolk having sex in couples and, and a naked <laughs> woman crying on a, on a gravestone. Mm. Clearly there is something different about this place. Now, you've mentioned it already, Stephen, but let's talk about the music by Paul Giovanni because it's here that he makes an appearance in the pub singing Gently Johnny. Mm. Mm. I, I did want to mention one thing, the orgy outside, and this is this is something I find really interesting. See, the film is full of point of view shots because he's our surrogate in the movie. So we get this slow motion point of view shot when he sees the orgy. And I think it's a very important moment for the character because he's a virgin. It's probably the first time he's ever seen anybody having sex. And uh, in Robin Hardy's novel, he sort of talks about how he expected it to be something beautiful. He expected it. He expected to see the the woman sort of transfigured by sex. And actually, it's something very base and very ugly. And so the whole film is almost like a, a very near miss sexual awakening for Howie. But yeah, the, the, the Gently Johnny sequence is the, the thing that I found very, very jarring when I when I first watched this cut. And I still have slightly mixed feelings about it, to be honest with you. It cuts very harshly from the outside of the green man to these sort of what looked like sort of spotty teenagers playing musical instruments because I think they were all newly graduated um, music students. Yeah, they were. I found that very, very difficult actually to accept the first time I saw it. And it's almost as if the film, I think it's probably the only time in the film this happens, the film almost stops being about the film and it starts, it's mostly about the musicians. And I've, I feel sort of like I'm watching a music video at times for Paul Giovanni. So it stops being about the, the music serving the film and it just starts being about the musicians so that was something that bothered me quite a bit initially but the more I watch it the the more I can accept it and I found it I find it actually rather rather haunting the song is very very beautiful and it sets up you know Willow's role within the community it suggests that that Howie is a virgin and I think importantly it pushes the hey-ho um, who is this scene further down the path within the film because in the theatrical cut that's where that is because it compressed the two days and two nights into two days and one night I think and it allows the sort of magic of summer isle to seep under Howie's skin more effectively but I mean I, I suppose it's it's the fact that it the sequence just suddenly appears it's not insinuated into the film at all and I mean, one of the th films I watched sort of in preparation for this was Don't Look Now, which was paired with The Wicker Man when it was originally originally released. And Don't Look Now, every scene is somehow insinuated into the next scene, albeit, you know, by sound bridges or fades. It's very, very clever. And I just found the existence of this sequence very, very abrupt within the film. But the film is much, much stronger with it than without it. I think um, with the way the songs are recorded, so it has just a very close sound. Like mm. you can hear the movement of fingers on strings. It's almost like the voices of the singers are right up next to you. Mm. And so in this sequence, the musicians do literally interrupt the movie and certainly impose themselves on the viewer and also Sergeant Howie. So... Even if it is abrupt, I think it also is establishes that this music is going to be with you an inch from your ear uh, mm. throughout the rest of the film. Yeah. 
Yeah, Paul Giovanni's sort of like the troubadour for the whole film, isn't he? Mm -hmm. Like he sings Harry in at the beginning. And I think that the musicians that are on screen are actually the musicians that recorded the music in the studio. So yeah. there is a kind of diegetic quality to it. I, I agree with that, actually. It is almost like introducing the musicians who are then going to um, enrich the, the rest of the film. So I, I agree with that. I, I've come around to it. It just took me a little while, that's all. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know, I think aside from a lot of the incidental music, which I think is by, is it by Magnet? Mm. Yes. You know, Giovanni, he, I think he recorded, or he, he wrote all but, I think, one of the songs in the film and performed them, as you said, Stephen, the student musicians, and they were recorded on 16 track at various studios across London. But I can't, I don't think I can think of a film where so many of the songs in the film are just brain bees. I watched the film and for days and days on end, not just one or two of these songs, but so many of these songs just stick in my head. Didn't I? I think I put a message on our on our kind of um, WhatsApp coordination chat group when we were you know prepping the episode, where I was telling you guys that I think about a week or two ago that I was listening to the soundtrack on Spotify, and this is kind of like the first time you'll ever catch me listening to folk music. But I was just absolutely loving it. <laughs> every single song in the film. I don't know. It just gets into your head, and you just can't you just can't get it out. And at the same time, each of these songs perfectly complements the scenes that they were written for, mm. and they comment on the philosophy of of summer isle as well i mean the maypole song essentially tells you what they believe yeah. um and you know the music is is sort of representing the island trying to cast a spell on on neil harry and it's it's also you know like i've been talking about the on the theme of sort of religious syncreticism is that okay so these are songs that give us the philosophy of summer isle this supposed ancient pagan pre-christian religion but it's all done in the style of late 60s early 70s folk music yeah so even if it's this you know from time immemorial belief system it's being worshipped in a very of the now mode and i think that personifies what samurai is going through at this moment mm. And in the final cut, it's here that we first meet Lord Summerall, who brings a young man for Willow. I get the impression that he's a virgin and she is, is taking his virginity. <laughs> I think I could turn and live with animals. They are so placid and self-contained. They do not lie awake in the dark and weep for their sins. They do not make me sick discussing their duty to God. Not one of them kneels to another or to his own kind that lived thousands of years ago. Not one of them is respectable or unhappy all over the earth. Mm. Yeah, that's a fantastic speech. That's Walt Whitman, wasn't it? It was a, a poem by Walt Whitman that um, wasn't in the script. Mm -hmm. And um, Robin Hardy just sort of sprung it on Christopher Lee, uh, who apparently has a very good memory and he was able to memorize it quite quickly. But again, it, it's one of those sequences where I just feel like he's saying something that we can see. You know what I mean? He's he's telling us something that we know just by watching the film and by seeing the characters wearing animal masks and seeing people, you know, having orgies outside. We don't need it pointed out to us. I, I, I don't honestly you could cut this scene out of the film and I wouldn't miss it. No, I, I'm well, I didn't miss it. But the more I've seen it, the, the more I like it, mostly just because of the atmosphere of it. And, and also, 
I used to be bothered by the fact that we're seeing Christopher Lee so early. Uh, one of the things I liked about the theatrical cut is his he's held back. Mm -hmm. And so the first time we see him is where um, Summer Isle and Neil Howey actually sort of meet and have their first head to head. And I, I liked it as a sort of mystery film where this man is talked about and his authority is talked about and then suddenly has sprung on us. Yeah. Later on in the film. You, you say that, Stephen, and I can only agree with you. I think the the way they were introducing him in the theatrical cut is better. I don't think we need mm. to see him here for the first time. And then if you take that initial early scene in the church, or the one that the film opens with in the final cut, again, this is pushing me back towards maybe the theatrical cut being, I don't know, maybe the most, uh, the most concise and to the point version of the film. And I think mm -hmm. everything else, arguably... And again, I'm not counting scenes which may be in the director's cut, which I've not seen for a long time. They may be kind of superfluous and, and a little bit of fat on the meat that could just be trimmed off. Well, they make the, they make the experience richer, actually. And I think they give you more to think about. Uh, there are some things that are more important than others. I mean, the police sequences that are in the director's cut, you definitely don't need. Yeah. And they're actually pretty bad. I feel like you do need the church sequences to to get the full sort of subtext of the film. Yeah, I don't think you need... Lord Summerall's speech but I like the way he's lit it sort of reminds you of Dracula you know he's half in shadows and it, it the whole thing is um, very enchanting and very haunting so I'm fine with it but I don't think you need it and for me I think it adds just another element of the uncanny to the mm. film you know he's he's saying these sort of doom-laden words as slugs mates next to him and it, it also establishes that Summerisle plays an active role in the lives of every individual on this island so he's not just in his manner and comes out on mayday to to you know play the fool and then go back he's around every single time a boy loses their virginity like he is a a1 cult leader and i think that's what this scene establishes more concretely um, so it, I can understand, like, if you don't like that slight bit of certainty to his character, I can understand why you would not prefer that scene in there. But it, it, for, for me, it works. Yeah, it does also give you a sense of there's a man in the shadows controlling everything. Yeah. Because if if this whole thing is a plot against Neil Howey, which I think it is, then, you know, there, there's the man in the dark pulling the strings. And there you go, Stephen, you've just sold it back to me why maybe the the final cut is... Yeah, it, it, it's, that's got its benefits as well. So like I say, I've, I've not got a preferred version of this film. I think I'd love all three versions, you know, mm. for, for different reasons, but pretty much, you know, equally. So then the next day, Howie goes to the local school. Obviously, he's looking for a missing schoolgirl. The school teacher, Miss Rose, is played by the Diane Salento, who was married to Anthony Schaffer until his death in 2001. Again, how he finds himself disgusted as Miss Rose is teaching the class about the image of the penis and its importance to their religion. That may well be the first time I've said the word penis on Film 89. Possibly. I've said it twice now. Yeah. Th that bit with the beetle in the unoccupied school drawer in the middle of a classroom, tied by a thread to a nail, it's just this wonderfully mm. creepy little touch. He then examines the school register and sees that the name Rowan Morrison is there with a home address of the post office, the one that he's already been to. And he accuses all the school children in the class of being despicable little liars. And then Miss Rose takes Sergeant Howie outside and tells him that Rowan Morrison doesn't exist. Not that she's dead, but that she doesn't exist, or she no longer exists. And that they don't use the word dead. 
and that Rowan has returned to the life force in another form. And then she strongly implies that theirs is a non-Christian religion, very different to his. I mean, in the schoolroom, that they're essentially trying to do magic on him, aren't they? That's what that beetle is going round and round. Attached and that's to an Arabic symbol. Um, right. that's, it's taken from the, the Golden Bough, but it is something from uh, Arabic folk religions. And mm. so it's something that, you know, someone in this universe, maybe Lord Summerisle has, you know, used as to cobble together this this folk religion he's created see john this is why why i picked you for this team <laughs> for, for those three pointers like uh, that boom straight yeah, in it, uh it, uh religious ephemera that's me yeah mm. but they're all in on it in on it aren't they i mean that's the thing that sort of bent my brain is who's in on what and i've come down to the conclusion that the children are, are all in on it you know they know what's going to happen to him it's this is uh, a great big play that everybody in the community is involved in. And so, you know, they're all in on it. And there's this thing about how, you know, because obviously they can't all be knowing what the other one's doing. So they must have some kind of playbook. They must have some sort of improvised script that they can work from. And I came to the conclusion that they're sort of drip feeding him information. So they, you know, when he first meets the harbour master, they completely deny the fact that Rowan Morrison was ever there but then when he mentions Mae Morrison they acknowledge that she exists and then when he goes to the schoolroom they all deny that Rowan exists uh, Miss Rose the Diane uh, Salento character f picks her words very carefully which is to say she, we don't know her she doesn't exist um, which gives them a kind of plausible deniability which is she, we're not saying we're not saying really that we don't that she was never here but that she doesn't exist and that's because she's changed forms so i just think there's this very there's this very devious and very clever plan going on all the time and, and the more times you watch the film the more you notice these things happening girls get on with your reading it's the rites and rituals of may day chapter five i won't be long well you don't understand sergeant nobody was lying i told you plainly if Rowan Morrison existed, we would know of her. You mean she doesn't exist? She's dead? You would say so. Oh, come on, come on. She's either dead or she's not dead. Here, we do not use the word. We believe that when the human life is over, the soul returns to trees, to air, to fire to water, to animals. So that Rowan Morrison has simply returned to the life forces in another form. You mean to say that you, you teach the children this stuff? Yes, I told you. It is what we believe. You never learn anything of Christianity. Only as a comparative religion. The children find it far easier to picture reincarnation than resurrection. Those rotting bodies are of great stumbling block for the childish imagination. Why, of course. And may I ask, where is the rotting body of Rowan Morrison? Why, where you'd expect it to be, in the earth. You mean in the churchyard? In a manner of speaking. No, in plain speaking. The building attached to the ground in which the body lies is no longer used for Christian worship. 
So whether it is still a churchyard is debatable. Uh, but forgive me, I must get back to my girls. Good morning to you. And you could understand Howie's fury mm. at, at the town sort of refusing to acknowledge the disappearance of a little girl and the fact that she doesn't exist. But he's also such a stuck-up Christian mm. that he can't stop himself from admonishing their religious beliefs along with trying to, you know, <laughs> do his job. And so at this point in the film, he's coming across as extraordinarily unsympathetic. And in a way, it's the the film itself is playing a game with us and our sympathies for for him and and what the town has done. Yeah, because he's a man of God who's come in to rescue a missing girl, and yet we don't sympathize with him because he's, yeah. because of the way he behaves. And, and because I think, you know, from a modern sensibility, perhaps we understand the Summer Isle, Summer Islanders, or whatever we're going to call them, a, li a little bit more. Um, and I think the film may have been in the 70s a sort of litmus test for what you believed and how you felt mm -hmm. about religion and how one should live one's life because i think some people in the 70s early 70s would have been very much on howie's side and other people would have been very much on on lord summerall's side and it may have been as well that you know people of a christian bent would have found um their beliefs and their closed-mindedness uh, challenged by by watching the film so then sergeant howie he visits the the local graveyard in summerall and he reads one of the tombstone inscriptions which reads here lieth Beach Buchanan, protected by the ejaculation of serpents. Now, is that something you plan on having inscribed on your tombstone, John? <laughs> um, no, but I will have that jar of foreskin that you see in the chemist shop uh, at, at my wake. Yeah. And then... <laughs> as he walks past a woman breastfeeding a child whilst holding an egg, he then pushes a few wooden crates of food off one of the graves. He takes two of the slats of wood from the crates and, and defiantly makes it into a cross, which he then places on the grave. And again, it, it's this that shows that maybe you don't need those opening scenes in the church from the, the, the director's cut and the final cut. Because I think we're shown enough kind of things in the film that show that this man is a staunch Christian. But also that, that sequence tells you a lot about him. So he basically brushes aside some apples, which have been created scientifically, we've discovered, you know, by Lord Summerall's sort of, um, you know, forebears. So he's kind of knocking aside, angrily knocking aside something that relates to nature and something that relates to science. And then he's putting down a symbol of superstition and sacrifice. So he's, he's a man that's against nature and a man that's against science. So it's a very subtle moment, but it tells us quite a lot about him, actually. Yeah. And and that he's so kind of frustrated and at this point impotent to do anything constructive, mm. you know, as it pertains to finding Rowan. So he resorts to this futile and stupid gesture of a, a makeshift cross on a unused grave marker. I think he wants to save the, the people from Summer Isle, doesn't he? he uh, mm. That comes back a few times in the film that he actually thinks it's his place to save them and bring them to Jesus. Yeah. And then Sergeant Howie questions the, the graveyard's groundskeeper about the, the trees he plants on the graves there. And, and he asks about a small rowan tree on one of the graves. And the groundskeeper tells him that it's the grave of Rowan Morrison, that she's been dead for about six or seven months. And then 
when asked where the local minister is, that you know the groundskeeper just laughs at him. Again, you know that 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 shows the kind of um, naivety maybe of Sergeant Howie, but the fact that he's just kind of slow to cotton on to the fact that these are not the, the Christians that he, you know, the type of people he's used to. He's as strange to them he, as they are to exactly. him. Exactly, that's the thing. And then he goes yeah. then back to the post office. May Morrison is placing a frog in Myrtle's mouth to cure her sore throat. And then by this point, Howie believes basically that they're all kind of raving mad. He then pays a visit to the local registrar at the library, played by Hammer Horror Beauty, Ingrid Pitt. Now, whereas the Swedish actress Britt Ackland was dubbed over by an actress, a voice actress, Annie Ross, the Polish Pitt isn't. She's not dubbed over. She confirms then to him that Rowan is dead, but she knows nothing of how she died. Mm. I can tell you why she wasn't dubbed. Uh, it's because she was in a relationship with a guy called George Pinches, who ran the rank organization. And so basically Ingrid Pitt is in the movie in order to um, make sure that the film got a wide distribution. So she basically, that's why she's not cut out of the film when she actually has quite a minor part. And that's the reason why she wasn't dubbed. But interestingly, she then had uh, an affair with uh, Peter Snell, who was the film's producer, and that got back to George Pinch's, and that's why the film didn't get a proper distribution. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's one, of the, one of the reasons, yeah. They, they had trouble obviously selling this to the British cinema um, chains. Sergeant Howie then goes to the local chemist. We see that you know the jars of all sorts of strange things, as you said, John, such as foreskins, rat brains, and snake oil. Then he makes his way through Summerisle to finally meet with Lord Summerisle himself, and on the way, he sees Miss Rose leading what looks to be a fertility dance around a fire in a, in a pagan stone structure that's kind of similar to Stonehenge. Good afternoon, Sergeant Howie. I trust the sight of the young people refreshes you. No, sir. It does not refresh me. Oh, I'm sorry. One should always be open to the regenerative influences. I understand you're looking for a missing girl. I found her. Splendid. In her grave. Your lordship is a justice of the peace. I need your permission to exhume her body, have it transported to the mainland for a pathologist's report. You suspect uh, foul play? I suspect murder and conspiracy to murder. In that case, you must go ahead. Your lordship seems strangely unconcerned. I'm confident your suspicions are wrong, Sergeant. We don't commit murder up here. We're a deeply religious people. Religious? With ruined churches. No ministers, no priests. And children dancing naked. They do love their divinity lessons. But they, they are... are naked. Naturally, it's much too dangerous to jump through the fire with your clothes on. What religion can, can, can they possibly be learning? J jumping over bonfires. Parthenogenesis. What? Literally, as Miss Rose would doubtless say in her assiduous way, reproduction without sexual union. Oh, what is all this? I mean, you, you, you've got fake, fake, fake biology, fake religion. Sir, have these children never heard of Jesus? Himself the son of a virgin, impregnated, I believe, by a ghost. Do sit down, Sergeant. Socks are so much better absorbed with the knees bent. Please. 
Now, those children out there, they're jumping through the flames in the hope that the god of fire will make them fruitful. Really, you can hardly blame them. After all, what girl would not prefer the child of a god to that of some acne-scarred artisan? And, and you, you encourage them in this? Actively. It's most important that each new generation born on summer hour be made aware that here the old gods aren't dead. And what of the true god? Whose glory, churches and monasteries have been built on these islands for generations past. Now, sir, what of him? He's dead. He can't complain. He had his chance, and in modern parlance, blew it. What? As Sergeant Howie has explained to him, in 1868, Lord Samar's grandfather bought the island and brought with him the changes that led to Summer Isle as we see it now and turned this barren island into one that's, that's lush and it's got all sorts of exotic plants. Sergeant Howie then exhumes Rowan's body and this is the setup that he referred to earlier Stephen with the hair that he finds a dead hair in her coffin. I think it's at this point now that, that Sergeant Howie realises he's being played and as much as he's not found Rowan and he's not got any more clues as to her actual whereabouts or what has happened to her or or the manner in which she has died because at this point there's still nothing to suggest that she's you know firmly alive or dead i i do want to say something about the the first time that they meet which i think really reveals where they both stand on their sort of respective um religions this is why this is why i think that samurai is a is a true believer because you know you've got Neil Howie basically, you know, asking him what the dance was all about, you know, and he says, um, you know, it's a uh, parthenogenesis, which is basically having children without sexual union. And he says, you know, oh, what is all this? And of course, you know, Howie completely cannot accept, cannot accept Lord Sumrall's religion at all. But Lord Sumrall is less dismissive of his. He makes fun of it. You know, he blew he, it. He, yeah, he, yeah, exactly. So he says, talking about the birth of Jesus, he's, you know, he says himself, the son of a virgin impregnated, I believe, by a ghost. So my first thought was, well, basically, he's saying it's all nonsense. It's all constructed. Yours is just as silly as mine. But where I came down in the end was that he actually isn't dismissing it. He's not saying it's not true. He's just saying that my God's better than your God, essentially. As John said, he also says, um, when Harry says, but what of the one true God? He said he has his chance and in the modern parlance, blew it. Mm. So he's not saying that your God doesn't ex exist. He's just saying my God's a stronger God, a, more, a God more, more worthy of worship. And I think that's, again, probably reflected in the, in the interaction they have before he's taken to the Wicker Man at the end. And I think just the nature and setting of the scene is really important because, you know, Howie, a represent a representative of the law and, and the British government has to be like escorted up this long path to what is, you know, a British manor house um, mm. in, in Scotland, you know, and he's, he's dressed in his Scottish regalia. When they first meet, he has, you know, a piano and a well-appointed drawing room this incredibly lush garden that was mm. constructed by the beneficence of his grandfather. This He has this inherited wealth, inherited power. So, okay, great. He created an entirely new society using the science that was able to plant fruits and, and trees that should not exist in this place, but he still cannot let go of his 
aristocratic place in society. He has to be Lord of Summer Isle, and he's mm-hmm. not going to let Sergeant Howie forget it. And Sergeant Howie, I think because he's a member of the class system as well in, in um, you know, in the United Kingdom, always refers to him as my lord, even when he's really angry with him, he keeps calling him my lord. Exactly. I've got to say, credit to the production design, because, you know, when, when we see Lord Samurai giving Sergeant Howie the tour of, you know, of his grounds, and we see all of these lush plants and, and you know, things that clearly look out of place in, in you know, the Western Scottish Highlands and, and you know, remote Scottish Islands as well. It looks like a kind of different place other than Scotland. Yes, it's completely otherworldly, isn't it? Yeah, otherworldly, yeah. Utopia. Yeah. And now, um, this is something that I learned when discussing Black Narcissus on Popcorn Eschaton. There was this trend in the Victorian era of nobles who had spent a lot of time in India paying people to bring over the vegetation that they enjoyed and missed from India back to England. So I don't know if... This is sort of like a remnant of that, possibly, but it, it's just b- because I had watched that movie recently, I, I connected those two things in my brain. Well, uh, John, when we're talking about production design and creating a place that looks totally realistic out of artificiality, I think Black Narcissus is probably the best example you could ever give. Oh, absolutely. A, yeah. a film shot in 1947, completely on, on set in the UK, to make it look like to make it look like Eastern India, yeah. yes. And at no point am I convinced that it's actually no, no. This is actually shot on location. To this day, I look at that film and I think, no, that no, that is not a map painting. That is real. And Jesus Christ, you know, credit to Paul and Pressburger that film. And some of the exteriors that were shot, or the scenes that were supposed to be exteriors in Black Narcissus, those that vegetation only exists because mid-Victorian aristocrats planted tropical plants in England. Yeah, a hundred a hundred years ago, just yeah. like the first Lord Somerville did. And you know, not not to sidetrack, but yeah, that, that's a you know a good comparison you brought up. If if anyone wants to check out, go on filmmaking9.co.uk. There is a written piece by myself on Black Black Narcissus where I kind of just gush wildly about how absolutely phenomenal that film looked. Yeah. And yeah, you know, it, it, it's similar here that I, I don't think, oh, well, clearly they are artificial trees that are just brought in. And, and it just looks, I don't know, it like you say, Stephen, otherworldly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they had to traipse all over the place, I think, to find all the different locations. They very much sort of cobbled it together from various different places. Like the outside of the castle is a different castle to the inside of the castle. It was, mm-hmm. it was the production design was a bit of a nightmare. I think the, there's a um, the um, art director Seamus Flannery really didn't like uh, Robin Hardy and and said um, the Wicker Man was directed despite Robin Hardy, not because of Robin <laughs> Hardy. Um, he was very very scathing about him, and I, I think basically what happened was. Um, the film was rushed into production. The sort of detailed backstory is that um, British Lion was basically taken over and there was a worry that their studio, Shepparton Studios, was going to be asset stripped. And so the person who'd bought British Lion said, well, we're going to prove that isn't true, so we're going to rush something into production. And so The Wicker Man was rushed into production at the wrong time of year. And there was there was really no way of saying no. If they didn't do it then, it was never going to happen. And so Seamus Flannery basically did months and months of work in the space of a few days. Um, and so they never really had 
the locations that they wanted and some of some of the locations were were would actually done post-production um weren't in the, the the initial shoot so the whole thing is just cobbled together from from all over galloway and dumfries and also i think 300 miles away in a place called plockton which is where the harbour master scenes were shot so yeah. i mean the fact that it looks as good as it does is really a miracle actually considering what they went through to sort of achieve that oh yeah absolutely yeah I found that in Rowan Morrison's grave. Little Rowan loved the Marchairs. Hmm. A sacrilege. Only if the ground is consecrated to the Christian belief. Personally, I think it makes a very lovely transmutation. I'm sure Rowan is most happy with it. Do you not think so, Lord Samurai? Miss, I hope you don't think that I can be made a fool of indefinitely. Where is Rowan Morrison? Well, here she is. What remains of her physically? Her soul, of course, may even not... Lord Samurai! Where is Rowan Morrison? Sergeant Howie, I think that you are supposed to be yeah. A child is reported missing on your island. First, I'm told there is no such child. I, I, I then find that there is, in fact, but she has been killed. I subsequently discovered that there is no death certificate. And now I find that there is a grave. There's no body. Very perplexing for you. What do you think can have happened? I think Rowan Morrison was murdered under circumstances of pagan barbarity which I can scarcely bring myself to believe is taking place in the 20th century. Howie then finds the original photograph of the 1972 harvest, the harvest the previous year, the one which had been taken off the wall in the, the Green Man pub. And he finds that it's Rowan in the picture and that the crops that year had failed. He then goes back to the Green Man for his final night's sleep on the island. And then we have what is, for me, certainly one of the most wonderful seduction scenes that I've ever seen in a film. And just one of the most beautiful pieces of music, Willow's Song. Mm. If there was any uncertainty when I initially watched this film as to how I felt about it, there was one thing that just struck me immediately, and it was this song. And when I then later bought that kind of deluxe Warner Brothers version, which had the soundtrack on there, a big draw of that was the fact that I was able just to listen to this song, because I, it just absolutely mesmerised me. What a mm. beautiful piece of music. It's it's a gorgeous piece of music, a a wonderful piece of choreography, and obviously Britt Eklund is is an incredibly beautiful actress. And the fact that these elements are are brought together in a way that like it's not just a piece of eroticism placed in the film to titillate the viewer. 
there is something magical about these elements on screen together that it's like, oh, this is a seduction performed remotely <laughs> because yeah, how there's, there's a solid wall between the pair of them. Yeah, has a how he can't see any of it. This is this is spellcraft being performed on Sergeant Howie in order to test his fortitude. So there is just an element of like uncanny and like uncomfortability in in addition to the the blatant sexiness that that Britt Eklund brings to her to her dance and the song. And you know they famously used a body double for the nude shots of, of Willow. We only see Eklund nude from the waist up and she was really Kind of devastated when she found out that they'd used a body double for those wide shots, which was shot without her knowledge. Because I saw an interview with Robin Hardy where he said that she requested to, to because she was she was self conscious about her about her about her behind. Yeah, she just she said some um, comments about her backside, but then I think they were kind of just that was a bit of insecurity on her part. I don't think she actually realized then that they were bringing in this body double for those wide shots. She was pregnant. She was um, she was a couple of months pregnant, and she she was more voluptuous than she normally would have been, and she yeah. felt embarrassed about showing her, her bum on the screen. Yeah. I think she said it, it, she had a bum like a ski slope. That's right. So they, she did. they yeah. yeah. So they, they yeah they brought in a body double. Um, they brought in a, a go-go dancer. I think yeah. from London, but I may have that wrong. No, and she they, was yeah she was from London from an, a London nightclub. The thing is with the Mooka Man is all the stories that are told behind the scenes don't match. No, there's so much contradiction, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's very difficult to, to figure out where the truth is because I was always under the impression, like you said earlier, that Britt Eklund was dubbed by Annie Ross. But then I, I watched the version of the film with the audio commentary and he says, uh, no, it, it's her own voice, but it, it very obviously isn't. And I used no. to really like the jazz group Lambert, Hendrix and Ross, where Annie Ross used to sing. Yeah. And uh, it does actually sound like her, but then it's not Annie Ross actually singing Willow's song. It's apparently someone called Rachel Verney. And I did a very brief Google search and I have no, I couldn't figure out who she was. Yeah. No, there's, there's so much kind of uncertainty about the authenticity of a lot of these behind the scenes stories and as we'll come to later there is there is a bit of contradiction and you just I don't think we're ever going to know the, the ultimate truth about this so much again I think it adds to the allure of the whole thing mm. absolutely I, I do think we've we've skipped over one important scene though um, I know you've mentioned it briefly but the when Howie throws the hair yeah. in into uh, Lord Summerall's sort of little get together that he's having with Miss Rose one you see the sort of unbridled Miss Rose um, two it's one of the filthiest the most um, insinuating songs you'll ever hear in your life but also it's it's the moment where the practical joke that they played on him related to the hair comes to fruition and they can barely keep a straight face at that point you know they're they're almost openly making fun of him you know they say oh little rowan she loved the march hairs and they're, they're almost laughing while they're yeah. looking at each other and it is almost like yes we are we are leading you a merry dance here what are you going to do about it well then what does he do he goes to the local library, doesn't he? And um, mm -hmm. he reads up about ritual pagan sacrifice. And then I think at that point he thinks, right, enough is enough. And he takes a boat out to a seaplane, only to find that it's been tampered with and the engine won't start, the radio's dead. So he's got no choice but to stay and find Rowan Morrison himself. And then the next day, how he then watches the start of the May Day festivities and Lord Summerisle speaks of the sacrifice to this sun god that's to follow. Mm. and how he then plans to search every house on Summerisle until he finds Rowan, who he believes, now at this point, is alive, but about to be subject of a sacrifice. 
I tell you that the thing that's so brilliant about it is, and I, again, I only noticed this on multiple rewatches, is all of these pieces have to be in place for their ruse to work. And so there's a moment where the hobby horse clacks its teeth and it leads Howie to one place and then it clacks its teeth and he follows it and it clacks its teeth and he follows it again. And it leads him all the way to Lord Summerisle, uh, explaining the nature of their celebration, explaining crucially where they're going to be. And I think they they need him to know this information so that later in the story, when he's dressed up as Mr. Punch, he knows where to go to join them. So it's so clever. All these little bits have been put in place that he's been led to this one place so he can pick up this vital piece of information, which he will need later on so that he can join them in their celebration. It's It's so clever. Yeah. And, you know, for me, it's interesting that Mr. Punch exists in this context because Punch is an Italian creation, you know, like like the Punch and Judy shows. So like, what is it doing at a, a May Day celebration in the midst of all this sort of like in- English medieval symbolism, like um, like the taking the Lord and making him a fool for a day and 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 elevating the fool to a place of importance. And so it's interesting that that's the costume, the one that stands out sort of mythologically that's the costume that howie steals and inserts himself in, into the into the procession as mm-hmm. and, and you know going back as to how he ends up in that costume he, he goes back to the green man for a convenient half hour nap which, which kind of john reminded me of a lot of the things that bond does in those ian fleming novels because he always kind of has an afternoon nap have you noticed yeah. <laughs> bond does a lot of that and i'm thinking how the hell can you sleep at a time like this but there you go so then Willow and her father leave on Howie's bedside table the burning severed hand of the dead old lady that he had previously seen in The Undertakers. Howie then pretended to be asleep. He knocks out McGregor, ties him up, takes his fool costume, his his punch costume, and joins in the procession. And then we've got a lot of stuff relating to the procession with the, the sword ritual in the kind of stone monument. But then when they eventually get to the beach, Lord Summerisle offers barrels of ale to the god of the sea and it's at that point he then proclaims and now for our more dreadful sacrifice to those who command the fruits of the earth i just want to mention um that the hand of glory sequence where as you say they they talk about you know are we we, we're going to use the hand of glory to make him go to sleep oh should we really use it you know it, it, it he could sleep for days they're talking in stage whispers they want him to overhear yes, what they're yes, saying. Sure. And L- Lindsay Kemp actually says, I'm a way to get changed. We can't do without punch. And it's uh, an in-joke between him and Willow, which is that when they say they can't do without punch, they need Howie to steal the punch outfit and to join the procession as a fool. His rightness for sacrifice is a tick list of things. And one of the things is that he has to be a fool. He has to be a willing fool. I mean, the, the, the film basically offers him various modes of escape. Like if he were to have sex with Willow, um, he's no longer a virgin. Therefore, he no longer qualifies as a sacrifice that is acceptable to Nuada, the, the god of the sun. But also he needs to be a fool and so and he needs to be willing. So it's almost as if they are trying to put him to sleep. And if he falls asleep and doesn't steal the costume, then Nuada doesn't want him He's and he's not a willing fool. But if he takes the lure, if he takes the bait and steals it, then he is 
a acceptable sacrifice. And so I think that seems very, very important. And it, again, it's another element of the very, very intricate, possibly unbelievably intricate game that they're playing on him. And I think we, we, we do see a brief moment of Mrs. Morrison breaking character mm. when she says to him, you'll never understand the true nature of sacrifice. Yeah. And that's not something she would have she was always so charming and and, and so accommodating uh, you know as far as the townsfolk would go to him before but that's an incredibly threatening moment mm. um, to, to, to come from her and and i think she can sense his end looming and i think that also clues us in that oh she's been with <laughs> this plot the whole time but th yeah. then the way that obviously how he interprets what she says is the fact that she is allowing her daughter to be sacrificed yeah you know, to but the betterment of we the know different. Yeah. Yeah. Although I have this sort of pet belief, which maybe I'm, I'm getting to this prematurely, but if Howie doesn't fulfill all the um, elements that are on their list to make him an acceptable sacrifice, maybe they do sacrifice Rowan. I mean, she's there. She's ready to go. Yeah. You know, may, maybe not everybody knows that, but it's quite possible that he will sleep with Willow or it's quite possible that the Hand of Glory will make him go to sleep or it's quite possible that he'll leave the island. I mean, they, they try and stop him from leaving the island, but I think they try and, but by probably sabotaging his plane. Um, but the harbour master makes a very clear point of saying, I'm not obstructing you, Sergeant. You can go. Uh, and even um, Rowan's mother tells him to leave. And I think that had he gotten in a rowboat and just rowed away, they wouldn't have stopped him. They don't want him to bring cops, but they no. probably wouldn't have stopped him from leaving because he has to be willing. And so I just have this pet belief that if he was to not meet their criteria, maybe they would sacrifice her. Yeah, just maybe. a theory. You know, it, it is when you're looking at cults like this, especially like doomsday cults, it's very difficult to predict how they're going to respond to mm. changes in the environment so either if you're looking at like like jim jones or any sort of doomsday cult like okay you predict the end is gonna occur on may 1st 1973 so then what do you do when the world doesn't end and then they come out with some other excuse and but there's always this certainty that the prophecy is going to be fulfilled mm. I, I think the islanders are just operating with absolute certainty that the events will transpire in a way that will bring howie to be the sacrifice and whether lord summerisle has contingency plans for another sacrifice i think that's up for interpretation but you know i think the citizens of summerisle are just all in at this point they, they are and actually i mean robin hardy's very very bad quasi sequel the wicker tree is it's a very very bad retread of the wicker man but um it does have the virgin character actually taking the lure and sleeping with the woman and they kill him anyway but then that you know, it's debatable whether Robin Hardy's vision of the film is the same as Anthony Schaffer's. I mean, there, there is a line at the end, which is why I, th I completely agree. You can't predict how they're going to behave. And I agree that they completely believe that the prophecy is going to come true and it and what they think is going to happen is going to happen. But there is there is the line where he says, you know, something along the lines of we, we would sacrifice an animal, but their acceptability is limited. Uh, a child is even better, which gives me a hint that that's one possibility. But I, but I, I yeah, completely yeah. take your point. I think they definitely considered it. Mm. So, the the big final act. Sergeant Howie finds Rowan alive and well, and in inverted commas rescues her. They make off into the caves, and 
up onto the cliff top and then the big twist finally unfolds. No matter what you do, you can't change the fact that I believe in the life eternal as promised to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in the life eternal as promised to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. That is good for believing what you do. We confer upon you a rare gift these days, a martyr's death. You will not only have life eternal, but you will sit with the saints among the elect. Come. It is time to keep your appointment with the Wicker Man. Oh, God! Oh, Jesus Christ! Oh, my God! Christ! No, no, dear God! No, Christ! the sun, bountiful goddess of our orchards, accept our sacrifice and make our blossoms fruit. Mighty God of the sun, bountiful goddess of our orchards, hear ye the words of the Lord. Awake ye heathens and howl. It is the Lord who hath laid waste your orchards. Reverence the sacrifice. Because the truth is withered away from the sons of men. Desire shall fail, and ye shall all die accursed. How he's shouting of, oh God, Christ, Jesus Christ. Now, according to Christopher Lee, his interpretation of that is that it wasn't him swearing or blaspheming, but asking for divine aid. And it's the intensity of those cries of, oh God, oh Christ, it's just bone chilling. Yeah, I completely agree with Christopher Lee's interpretation, um, because if yeah. we want to skip, skip to the last seconds of the film, Howie's last words are Daniel, Daniel. And that refers to either... Daniel was directly saved from the pit of the lion by God. So that's an example of divine intervention or some there there's another incident in the Old Testament where 
disciples of Daniel were thrown into a furnace and emerged unharmed. So he could be he's invoking one of those biblical incidents. But I think in this case, how he's not blaspheming, he is he is calling out to God for salvation. Yeah. I never knew what he said at the end. I've been listening to that over and over again, and I couldn't quite figure out what the what those last screams were. So thank thank you for enlightening me. Yeah, yeah. that's the first time that I've I realized that that is what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is uh, like an obscure reference, so uh, I had trouble for a while as yeah. well. Yeah. Now, the production designer, which you previously mentioned, I think, Stephen, you mentioned him, Seamus Flannery, was charged yeah. with building this full-size wicker man, which would be burned on the clifftop. Now, he chose, I think, p- quite perfectly, really, not to give it a face of any kind, unlike the illustrations that he had seen when he was researching what traditional wicker men looked like. And one of my favourite kind of little behind-the-scenes stories, and again, like you say, Stephen, how much of what you know these people are saying are true, mm. but Anthony Schaffer says a delegation of locals came to the production and asked if they actually intended on oh, burning yeah. real animals in the giant prop. <laughs> and what did he say in response? He wrote a letter, I think, or it was published, saying something to the effect of... Um, don't worry, we're just planning to burn uh, pandas and oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> cuddly, uh, cuddly rabbits and domestic animals. So don't, did, don't worry. Yeah. And the idea being that they would suddenly realise how um, ridiculous they were being. Well, yeah. apparently the animals were terrified. I mean, um, Edward Woodward talks about being peed all over by, by a goat that was above him. But I want to say that, yeah, that, that scream of, oh God, oh Jesus Christ, is, is truly chilling. And we see him see it before we see it. So you just, the, the camera sort of does a, a, a almost like a crash zoom into his face as he sees it and the reality of what's going to happen to him suddenly dawns. And he, as as I agree with Christopher Lee and, and yourself, he's, in, he's invoking divine intervention. I mean, prior to that, he almost seemed to accept his role as a martyr. And one of the very important lines in the film is Christopher Lee saying to him, um, we confer upon you a great gift for these days, or something to this effect, a martyr's death. And that's why I think that he is a polytheist, because he's saying that both of our truths can be true. You know, we can give you to Nawada and replenish our crops, and you can go and sit amongst the elect. So I guess that's why I think that. And the other thing I wanted to say is his acting is, I'm talking about Edward Woodward now, we haven't talked enough about him. He's so brilliant in the film. And I think the most brilliant moment in the film is not necessarily him screaming when he sees the Wicker Man. It's when he realises that a trick has been played on him. And Rowan Morrison has seen Lord Summerallen run into his arms. And he cannot quite comprehend what's happened to him. The penny just hasn't dropped and he's got this look of incomprehension and for a very tough authoritative figure he looks incredibly vulnerable mm-hmm. and then he tries in a very sort of Kipling-esque way to just stride away and he can't obviously because Oak throws him to the ground and then he tries he tries to convince the Summer Island island people the summer isle people um that they're actually going to commit a murder and they start humming and it's it's almost as if they're trying to block out all rational argument by humming and that's when the music becomes very very sinister and in terms of when he's actually in the wicker man burning and i i've gotten to the point now where i find this very 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 difficult to watch there's something so incredibly brave about someone completely refusing to relinquish their beliefs. 
while all of this stuff's happening to them. So he prays and I presume it's conveyed that he believes that he's going to go and join his creator. And I, I find that very, very moving actually and in in a way it's all open to interpretation but there are some times when i think that he does die a heroic death because he doesn't relinquish his beliefs whatever you may think of the quality of his beliefs whatever your religious standing is there is something very very brave about that and and yeah i've, I've gotten to the point now where I, I find his death very difficult to watch and very moving at the same time it could have been a very easy and cynical move to have him sort of like repent, like, oh no, I'm actually not a Christian. I don't believe in Jesus. Just please don't burn me. Please don't burn me. And I think that would have been like antithetical to everything that Edward Woodward had built up I, in his character. So I'm glad they did not do anything like that. I like don't really that. mean that. I mean that he kept his shit together because yes, of his beliefs. Yeah. That's really what I mean. And that's why I think I find it powerful that he gains uh, solace and strength from his beliefs while he's undergoing the most extraordinarily mm -hmm. awful, um, you know, the most extraordinarily awful thing is happening to him. And, you know, he's he's praying. I don't know if it's, it seems to be from his soul and not from his memory that, mm -hmm. you know, God, even if I may die unshriven, please accept me in, into the kingdom of heaven. And you know, as layered and complicated and brilliant as this movie is, there is also a lot of poor criticism of this movie. Mm. Just like in my research leading up to the, this recording, I read a review or an essay, I, I guess you would call it, talking about how he's actually not a martyr because martyrdom typically implies that you're the victim of religious persecution. So, you know, classic example, Romans executing Christians for defying the laws of Rome in their practice of Christianity. I, I guess I could buy that. But the article points out that, well, he's he's not going to go to heaven because his sins have not been forgiven, because he hasn't been to confession or, or, or had light last rites performed on him. But that's bad theology, mm. because it, it's Christian doctrine that anyone who dies as a martyr is immediately taken into the kingdom of heaven and sits at the right hand of God. They're, they're held in a special place precisely because they were not given the opportunity to ask for confession or give less rites. So there's enough layers to this film that even people who write about film don't consider everything that's in front of them. I think, uh, John, is it a case of the sacrifice in relation to Jesus was done as a form of punishment for the religion that he chose and what he represented? Whereas in terms of the people which are committing the act of sacrifice here, they're doing it not as a form of punishment, but they're doing it as a form of sacrifice for their own benefit based on their own beliefs the fact that they need to sacrifice this person in order, in order to appease their gods so that their crops will flourish the following year yeah i i, I do think you can make that dis distinction but he is specifically dying or at least part of it because he is a christian they, they needed a representative of the the english government who is a christian who is a virgin to meet all these criteria um, for this the sacrifice and while I think the nature of it is different than Killing somebody because they're defying your laws by practicing Christianity I, I would still certainly qualify him as, as a martyr and throughout the history of Christianity The definition of martyrdom has expanded to people who were like kept in prison for their whole life or severely tor tortured yeah. 
so I, I certainly think that Howie qualifies as a martyr, even if it's not in the like classic 45 AD sense of the, of the word. I think in the film as well, you know, it treats religion as something real in a way, which is why I sort of view it as a fantasy film, because Nuada is essentially a character in the film. I mean, there's a sequence earlier, which we haven't talked about, where they uh, are pretending to behead somebody. You know, there's the chop-chop sequence while they're all walking through the swords. And when the sacrifice there, which isn't a real sacrifice, is about to occur, there's this weird focus pull on the sun. And then when, in, in my view, Nuada realizes that the person hasn't died, the focus pull goes away again. And the way the movie ends, I'm jumping ahead very slightly, is with the uh, wicker man's head falling and then you see the sun slowly sinking into the sea and and i read it as nuada is satisfied and i and i think there are there are repeat shots of the sun all the way through the movie and also one of the things that makes the burning sequence so disturbing is rather like other elements through the film we see some of it through his eyes i mean there are point of view shots looking out at the people singing and there is something so disturbing about the idea of finding yourself in this absolutely bizarre situation about to be sacrificed and the people watching are having the absolute time of their lives. There's something so, so cruel and so disturbing about that. Well, yeah, I think this is for me, like at the end, that's how he is singing the Lord's Prayer and then praying for salvation. His God forsakes him. And that for me is where the true horror of the Wicker Man lies, the point at which these flames take this honourable and faithful servant of God and that God forsakes him. And and mm. for all the faith that this guy has got, there is some point in this story where he reached a point beyond which he was not going to return, where nothing mm. he could have done could have stopped what was going to happen from happening. Well, that's one way of reading it. But I mean, as I say, they need him to tick certain boxes. I mean, I think John... Yeah, but that's what I mean. There's a point beyond which he... he when they got to the point where they got to those that the, those the bottom of the cliffs and then you oh, find no Rowan, out. they, they yeah. knew what was going to happen. Yeah, no, you're right. There's absolutely no yeah. way out. There's nothing he and can say to change their minds. I think the question I've got is just where is along this story? Where is that point of no return? And I think maybe you could go far as back as the temptation offered by Willow. For me, it's the hand of glory. If he'd if he'd not bumped um, Lindsay Kemp on the head and stolen the punch uniform, then he doesn't tick that last box of the willing the willing fool. Yeah. But, but I, I agree with John. You don't know how they're going to react if he doesn't do the thing that yeah. they think he's going to do. So that may not have saved him. I mean, they've set it up so that he needs to tick these boxes to be the right sacrifice. But yeah, I, I think John's right. Who knows what they'll do if he deviates from their script. But you, you mentioned, Stephen, that in that earlier scene where it cuts to that shot of the sun, you know, the sun mm. god Noada, and then how does the film end? It ends with ultimately what I could argue is the ultimate antagonist in this film, which is the sun, the sun god. Mm. Yeah. Let's go back then to that previous um, comparison I made with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where that film finishes with our antagonist, Leatherface, and what is that final shot set against? The sunset. Mm. Interesting. All ties together nicely. <laughs> And, you know, the, the presence of the sun, like you were talking about, Sky, I think that gets to the inherent appeal of, of paganism and, and probably why it's seen a, a, a resurgence in the last you know few decades is that you know, nature is present and all around us. And the miracle of life of, you know, new crops of the sunrise and the sunset and, and the tides and the beauty of nature 
That's everywhere. Whereas Howie has to grit his teeth and declare his faith and pray for a miracle to, to save him. And that's psychologically more difficult and, you know, oftentimes less comforting. And so the appeal of your religion directly resulting in wealth and food for you and your family. I mean, that's that's a pretty enticing prospect. Um, and, and so the life, the simple life of the people of Summerisle, you know, it, it can be tempting for sure. So, James, do their crops flourish the following year? Well, that's what makes the film so fascinating, isn't it? You don't know. And I, I think one of the reasons why the film lives in the memory uh, so much after it's ended is that the the sort of narrative circle hasn't been completed you know you you don't know is it going to work is Howie's prediction going to come true and Summerall's going to be the next victim you know you can you can imagine them you know you can imagine the flames going down you can imagine them you know you can imagine them sort of clearing away the detritus you can imagine Mary Bannock at home wondering what happened to her man I mean that the, the fact that you can't know these things is is why the film is so completely haunting and fascinating. I mean, Anthony Schaffer actually wrote a sequel to the film called The Wicker Man 2. Spoiler alert, Howie isn't dead. He gets rescued. A plane swoops down and saves him. So, um, <laughs> you know, oh. it's, uh, I'm very glad that never got made. Yeah, me um, too. <laughs> so yeah, I have no idea. Well, Stephen, you've pointed out obviously the wonderful ambiguity of how you can interpret the ending. John, as a man of faith, did those crops flourish? Um, I have to say no, they did not. Um, because I, I, this is part of why I think that Samarail is a true believer. Because if he had just gone back to what his grandfather did and examined the soil, examined the currents, say, okay, here are the plants we need to plant next season to reintroduce the nutrients we need for the soil so that we have agriculture in the future. If he had just incorporated science, the scientific method, he would have had better crops because, mm. you know, I, I think they've just drained the nutrients from this place. And like how he says, it's against nature what you've done. And if he had just used a little bit of science, maybe he could have kept it going for another few years. But instead, he's he, he's burning a man to death to sacrifice to the god of the sun. And and uh, I think his crops are doomed because of that. Oh, there's another argument, which is something that occurred to me earlier on, which is that this whole thing is just a ruse for him to kind of, you know, sort out the science and start and start growing the, the apples as his grandfather did. Um, and but, you know, it's it's very much open to interpretation. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you know that personally, I I think that they do flourish simply because, Samuel said with such conviction, they will not fail. The crops will not fail. Yeah, if mm. if anyone can talk plants into growing, it's Christopher Lee. <laughs> Ultimately, the other way to look at it is, if those crops did fail, then I'm pretty sure the Samuel, being the astute fellow that he is would have scooted off before the islanders turned on him. Maybe he went off to some remote island in Macau. Maybe he's got a third nipple. Maybe he assembled a golden gun and then the following year he met a different fate. <laughs> he does have a flicker of doubt, doesn't he, when Howie says that, you know, you're next. And then yeah. he sort of, and you again, you could interpret it in many different ways. I mean, I, I look at it as a sort of slight wavering in his faith. And then he gathers himself and says uh, the crops will not fail the the um something like the offering of the 
a willing king like virgin fool will be accepted and he's convinced himself it'll work well the other question i've got guys is what of the follow-up investigation by the west highland police constabulary into the whereabouts of their now missing sergeant well that's the sequel that's what happens so taggart who we only see in the director's cut swoops down in a plane and rescues him and uh, takes him back and because nuada wasn't properly appeased all of the people on the island aged 25 years which is which they had to because the film would have been made 25 years later and then they they go back to the island and how he's recovered and they do investigate uh and taggart uh, i think it's mctaggart gets uh killed and how he gets thrown off a cliff oh so yeah all right so that's what happens next i mean <laughs> another argument for the thing that certain films just should never be given the sequel no, absolutely not, no. I mean, if you were really trying to cover up his death, you could have just towed that plane out to the sea and sank it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, he, yeah. he crashed into the ocean. Yeah. And, but they're uh, going to come after him, aren't they? They're going to try and figure out what happened. So yeah, they, they yeah. must have some sort of cover story. Which, yes, sinking yeah. the plane in the sea probably would have been the best one. No, no, we never saw him. No, no. So then, after shooting Rat, British Lion, like you said, Stephen, had a major reshuffle, which saw producer Peter Snow replaced by Michael Dealey and Barry Spikins. Now, somewhere here, the original cut, or the so-called director's cut, which ran at around 99 to 100 minutes, was pared down to 87 minutes. Now, Christopher Lee spoke of the first time he saw this cut of the film in the British Lion projection room. He says he was very impressed with what he saw, but also aware that there was a great amount of footage missing. And he immediately spoke to Michael Dealey and told him that the film was terrific, but asked if there was any chance that the excise footage be put back in. And Dealey's response, quite unbelievably, was, I think it's one of the 10 worst films I've ever seen. And again, Stephen, like you say, there's a lot of discrepancies in the behind-the-scenes stories because Dealey, he vehemently denies saying this, stating that he thought the film was indulgent but also very ahead of his time. Inevitably, the distributors had no real grasp as to how to sell this film. They couldn't find a buyer to put it into British cinemas. And then Dealey sent a copy to legendary American film producer and distributor Roger Corman, who saw it as somewhere between a commercial horror film and an arthouse film. They then cut the film further to make it fit into a double feature because like you say it was shown in some places a double feature with don't look now and most of christopher lee's introductory scenes were removed woodward felt that the film had been hacked and that the cuts were a travesty yet the film survived and it was reborn when following its original u.s theatrical release film critic turned independent distributor john simon had heard of the original cut and then he sought to restore it now simon met with robin hardy and they then met with michael dealey who stated that they no longer had the original negative now rumor was that it had been buried or destroyed now dealey brushed this off as paranoia stating that you know original negatives get lost or misplaced all the time hardy then thankfully went to roger corman and corman confirmed that the print that he'd originally been sent was the longer version and it was from this print that corman had that the longer version of the director's cut of the film that we've now got was restored in, yeah indeed i mean it's a it's shocking it's absolutely shocking what happened to the film and um i mean i think the 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 negative was actually thrown into a landfill by mistake that's actually what happened to the original negative and um the editor eric boyd uh, perkins knew the vault keeper for the studio and it was confirmed that the the negative and all the outtakes which ran to 300 and something cans of film basically uh, just ended up in the wrong pile and got thrown into a landfill and uh, a motorway was built over the top of it. Yeah. 
You know, it's one of the most frustrating aspects of being somebody who loves film as much as I do is encountering all these instances, you know, all the way back to Carl Theodore Dreyer's Vampire, um, to Wicker Man, to The Thing, where these out-and-out masterpieces are reviled and or ignored when they're released by, by critics, by fans, by audiences in general, and certainly by studio executives and so you know it's only through time and perspective that we're able to appreciate these films and like myself as a viewer included and so i'm obviously grateful that we have various cuts of the wicker man to to choose from at this point and not just an 85 minute version well gents before we kind of you know wrap things up and give our final thoughts on this this film should we talk about something truly terrifying Mm. the 2006 remake Oh, oh dear. Um, step, step away from the push bike. I, as much as I love Nick Cage, I've not seen it. I've oh, stayed I away from it. I watched it in preparation for this to be completest about it. And I mean, it is. masochist. Yeah, I, I know. It's, it's, it's completely idiotic. Um, they've taken away all, all notions of faith from the story. So when he gets burned, he's got nothing to say. He just does a sort of insane Nick Cage scream as he's being burnt. It's, um, and it's, it's completely ridiculous. I mean, he goes around sort of punching and kicking because all the people on the island are women. Um, Yeah. I've heard there's a lot of um, violence against women in that film. Yeah. He just goes around punching and kicking them. And if it wasn't so disturbing, it would be hilariously funny because it, it just seems so completely absurd and unpleasant. It's a, it's an absolutely terrible film. I mean, The Wicker Man is exactly the wrong kind of movie to remake. It's something, you know, very, yeah, it's unique, made by artists who are making a piece of art that was very emblematic of the time and place in which they made it. And to remake it in a very, like, mid-2000 type of commercial horror film is the antithesis of what the original is supposed to be as much as I think Nick Cage is the most interesting actor of his generation. Um, it's, it's a waste of his time and the viewer's time. It was a passion project for him, I think, wasn't it? But, um, it just, yeah, it, 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 it went completely wrong. I mean, I think Nick Cage is one of those guys that throws a lot against the wall and some of it sticks very well. And some of it's absolutely awful. Yeah. And was this back in the period where he was, um, kind of heavily in debt he had issues with taxes and stuff like that and was just trying to do everything he could to make a a fast buck i think it's probably the end of his a-list stardom it's like when he's just starting to slide that's how that was my read on it i I think so yeah so going back to the film you know the, the actual original what do you think is the key to the lasting legacy of this totally unique little british folk horror film I mean, uh, the, the the performances are, are key, but both Edward Woodward and Christopher Lee. I, th- I think just in the horror community, the presence of people like Christopher Lee, uh, Vincent Price or Peter Cushing in your movie is going to give it legs. But the iconography, the music, and the fact that there's no other film like it, I think those are all the key elements that just makes it stick with you and and gives it something gives it something for the public to latch onto and you know never let go. It's just incredibly strange. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's magical. It's ethereal. It's as you say, it's full of very memorable music. It's erotic. It's a mystery. It's very very haunting and it has an ending that will stay with you 
for a very, very long time. And it's also eminently rewatchable, which I've found as you start to pick apart actually what the elements and the intricacies are of this terrible trick that they've played on this poor, priggish, repressed man. And and also it's it's the idea of these two differing takes on religion being butted up against each other. It, it's It's that as well. And what side you end up falling on or whether it changes your mind or whose side you take it's 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 all of those things and you know in the last decade or so there's been a big resurgence in folk horror as a genre mm. and um you know the, the the great documentary um Woodland's Dark and Days Bewitched by that that was sort of produced by by Severin. Um, they really go into detail about why that's resurgent, and I and this is one of the key films in that movement. So I think The Wicker Man is as popular as ever, mm-hmm. and it, it's a film that is as magical and indelible as it is worth examining in detail, and that combination is is rare in in any art form. And also, it hasn't been done to death. You know, it it hasn't, possibly because it wasn't a commercial success when it was originally made, but nobody tried to repeat the formula. I mean, they've started to now. You know, you mentioned Midsummer earlier, which is very much uh, influenced by The Wicker Man. And there's another film called Kill List, the Ben Ben Whitley film, I think, which was influenced by The Wicker Man. But generally speaking, what it did has not been done and done and done and done um very much unlike uh, another classic horror movie which was released the same year the exorcist which keeps getting regurgitated back to us over and over and over again i think it's a, a more intricate and more sophisticated film than the exorcist but um i think it's that that it it, it stands alone and we haven't had time to get sick of the formula it hasn't been it hasn't been repurposed and fed back to us because with, you know, Exorcist, you immediately had a dozen European and American knockoffs mm. um, to, to flood the the horror gates with pale, pale imitations. And so this, I think Wicker Man is an example of a movie whose initial commercial performance may have helped its longevity, even though Exorcist is one of the most popular films of the 70s. Mm. The fact that we've seen so many possession films I think for somebody getting into horror now might make it less scary than The Wicker Man. Yeah, and also its tortured story of its survival is also, I think, part of its appeal. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, when you see um, the director's cut and you see the slightly degraded bits of footage and you realise the hell that this film's gone through after it was made, I think that's part of it as well. And I mean, one thing I I didn't chime in on really very much, but the the Willows song sequence and the the uh, stand-in, uh, the sort of butt double that she has, in a way, I feel like that shouldn't have got through. It looks terrible. But at the same time, it gives you almost like a glimpse behind the curtain of how difficult, how troubled this production was. So I, I almost think that the... The, the issues that are visible on screen somehow add to the appeal or the legend of the film. And that's part of why it's maybe the greatest cult British film. Yeah, I, you know, I, there's very little I can add in addition to what you guys have said. It perfectly sums up how I feel about this film. It is just such a unique film. And if I was trying to sell this film to someone who hadn't seen it, I just don't know how. I, I would just have to say to them, just, just watch it. 
don't go in with any expectations. If you go in expecting an out and out horror, you're going to end up in the predicament I was in where I had to watch the film several times and put aside those preconceived ideas as to what I was going to be watching because this film is so unlike any other film I've ever seen. When I'm judging a film and when in my head I'm, I'm scoring a film, like, you know, say for, you know, a numeric, trying to give a film a score out of 10, I'm always comparing films to other like films. If I'm talking about action films, I'm always going to hold the ultimate you know, benchmark, uh, you know, the high watermark as Die Hard being mm. in, in terms of both a phenomenal film and the ultimate action film. And then every other action film that falls below that is going to be held in relation to Die Hard. But when I'm talking about The Wicker Man, is what am I comparing it to? I can't think of any other film that is like it. Yes, we, you know, I've made comparisons to The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but they are purely tonal and aesthetic comparisons. They're both quite different films. I can't think of anything that is like The Wicker Man. And the way it employs music and songs and, and you know, there is nothing like it. And I mean, it is a musical. Yeah, it's been described as a musical. And mm. I, I and not many musical horror films, for sure. <laughs> no. Yeah. It, it's, it's not a musical in the conventional terms, but it, it, it does employ music like no other film I've ever seen. Like certainly no other horror film. And yeah, it, it is... It's a film that when I first saw, I was quite flummoxed with and, and just, you know, because again, going in with expectations based on what I'd heard from well-respected film critics and not knowing the film I was getting into. Over years of watching the film and re-watching it and, and you know, digging into the behind-the-scenes stuff about it, I've just grown an appreciation for this film and it is, for me, hands down, one of my favourite horror films. We've done favourite horror films. Um, Crikey, John, wasn't it you, me and Jay Blake that did our favourite horror yeah, films? Yeah, yeah, a while ago, but yeah, yes, yeah. And I'm pretty sure that The Wicked Man actually was maybe my number five. Uh, again, that could be interchangeable with any film in my favourite five horror films. But it, it is yeah. just, it's just no, no classic. And, you know, I just think it's one of those films where hopefully you'll watch it. And even if you don't get it, you'll persist and then it'll kind of gel with you. Or you won't. Um, but I can fully understand someone that could go into this film and watch it and think it's so kind of off kilter and odd and quirky that, yeah, that might turn people off. The best way of watching it is not is not knowing that it's a horror movie. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's when I was a teenager, when I saw it, I, I doubt very much I had any expectations at all. Mm. It was just uh, like you guys. I, I was sort of doing the whole film education thing and watching films that I knew were meant to be classics. But I probably didn't know anything about it other than that it has a reputation as a classic movie. So I would have just you know, randomly sort of slapped it on one day when I had nothing to nothing else to do and it sort of cast its spell over me. But had I gone in expecting to have the pants scared off me, I might have had a very different reaction and the spell that it intends to cast over me perhaps wouldn't have worked. I don't know. And I think it's it's quirkiness and the fact that it shies away from the regular horror conventions is just part of the beauty of the film. The fact that it lulls you into a false sense of security. It's kind of like a murder mystery. It's a, it's a it's a game and then by the time you get to that ending it's got you and it's like boom now we've got you here's a good hard gut punch this is the the actual horror element and it's all thrown at you in that just perfect ending you know one thing we haven't talked about actually is is howie's virginity i mean in the sort of classic hammer mold the idea would be that if you maintained your virginity you would be saved. So a lot of the Dracula movies about are about women being seduced by Dracula and giving in to carnality. But actually, if Howie just gave in to his carnality, 
and had sex, he would be he would be saved. So that's very, very clever. And I think the the way that, you know, having Ingrid Pitt from Vampire Lovers and Countess Dracula and having Dracula himself in the movie would make you expect certain things to happen. But then the man of God, who's meant to be the saviour, actually gets burned alive at the end. And I think, you know, for audiences of the time that would have had certain expectations of of that setup and those characters, it would have been really, really surprising and shocking, actually, more, more so than it is today. And, and throwing sexuality at him in, in the way that they do with the Landlord's Daughter song and with the orgy in the graveyard. Um, mm. it, it just sets the audience and Howie off off center when it comes to, to sexual morality. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So there we have it. Cult British horror film The Wicker Man discussed for its 50th anniversary. If you've enjoyed this episode and hopefully all of our episodes, then please leave us a positive review on your podcast provider of choice, especially if that happens to be Apple Podcasts, where those five-star reviews really will help us a great deal. Gents, where can people find you on social media if they want to discuss film, television, or if they just want to lure you to a remote Scottish island? I am on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Quasar Sniffer. Like, uh, Sky was very kind to point out at the beginning i'm currently doing a uh podcast with scott thorough called popcorn eschaton that's on the zebras in america feed uh where we talk about movies from a spiritual and or leftist perspective and we recently did an episode on uh westerns um which was a, a great time we talked about terror in a texas town and the not really western but it, it stars gary cooper so that's fine um friendly persuasion uh, and come on, let's not forget, John, that three-hour, 53-minute uh, episode of The Pink Smoke you just did with Bill yeah, Scurry. Yeah, uh, just going to drop that. Uh, yeah, we, uh, me, Bill Scurry, and John Cribbs did a almost four-hour podcast about spy movies. And then that's just part one of oh. our epic spy movie conversation. We're going to get to the 80s up until today in a part two. That's already recorded, and um, it was it was a great time, and I really appreciate anybody who is willing to, to listen to me talk for four hours so, so or record with me about it. So thank you. Well, I, I listened to it in its entirety the day it dropped, and it is a banger. You're, you're too kind, Sky. Thank you. I'm uh, my personal Twitter is uh, at that SJ Saunders and I write various reviews about TV, theater and film and occasionally um, gigs. Um, and that's uh, at Culture Pages UK. Yeah, so please give them a follow. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies and you can find all of the, the Film 89 team on Twitter and Facebook and their respective uh, links to their individual uh, Twitter feeds at Film 89 UK. This has been episode 97 and we are now getting really close to our 100th episode. Just as we did for our 50th episode, we've got something special planned. Steve, Neil, Richie and I will be getting together for a huge Q&A episode where we are going to answer any listener questions you care to send us, be they about film, television, pop culture, or if you just want to know any of our deepest, darkest secrets and then you want them to share them with you, our faithful listeners. So please DM us on Twitter and Facebook or tweet us or email us at admin at film89.co.uk with any questions you want us to answer on our upcoming 100th episode. But that's it for now, gentlemen. Uh, thank you very much for joining me tonight. It has been an absolutely just wonderful discussion about one of my favourite films. But until next time, stay safe, be excellent to one another, but most importantly, stay classy. Nicely done.